0: Not here last week, very nice. Um Well, good evening, everyone. It's, uh, good to see you all here. Um, tonight we'll be continuing our series on Nehemiah. Um, we've gone through last week, uh, Graham going through chapters one and two, um, uh, and doing a marvellous uh, job, particularly looking at prayer. and um, And this week we're going to continue with chapter three. Um, for me, uh, in in studying uh, chapter three, um, it's it's sort of exposed uh, a flaw that that I can sometimes have, and, and I'm sure other people may may potentially have when they come to scriptures um, of uh, reading reading a particular passage or chapter or, or whatnot, and um, and and reading it at a, at a rather surface level, which, in which uh, a, a shallow meaning is sort of drawn out. Um, for me, I know I sort of came to chapter three, and um, uh, and for and at least for the first sort of day or two of my preparation, uh, I struggled to get much more out of it than leadership principles. Um, and you'll find out why as we as we go through it. Um, but what I what I find is this: is that reading through books such as Nehemiah and and particularly uh, chapter three um, of Nehemiah, um, it forces us to really consider what we Hold the Bible to be, um, uh, which it, not in its entirety, but doctrinally speaking, is, is two things. It's one, uh, a human book. It is man-written. Uh, it wasn't as, um, say, Joseph Smith and the Mormons believe uh, about their holy books that it was, you know, written on gold tablets given by God or angels or whatnot. Uh, it was written by human authors. Uh, God used, you know. The Holy Spirit through the agency of, of people uh, to compile and to write uh, His Scriptures. But moreover, it's it's a, it's a divine book, as we know. It's the inspired, infallible, inerrant—all those wonderful words. Uh, word of God it is God breathed, as, as it says in Timothy and other places. It is uh, it is every single word in the speaking from like on the original manuscripts, for example, every word and every uh, phrase and and even every sort of nuance in the Greek and the Hebrew is there for a reason and it's because God wanted it to be there. So the thing that we have to consider when we come to books and passages like this and chapters like this is that this particular chapter is in the Scriptures for a very good reason. And I want to affirm that to you before we get into it. Um, and as a precursor, uh, you might be thinking, well, why does he need to point this out? Um, we're going to find out very, very quickly why I need to point that out. Um uh, I noticed that we have um, a faithful remnant here uh, tonight of, of a rather small contingency. Uh, we have the heaters on, which we're all really enjoying, and that provides an environment in which dozing off becomes rather easy. And so, uh, despite the fact that Tyler Knoll and Daniel Thomas can sometimes be both as effective as each other, uh, I bid that you stay awake whilst I go through these, uh, this chapter. Okay. Um, but there will be a lot of good stuff to draw out of it, I promise you. So if you can bear with me as we go through the 30-odd verses that we have to go through, um, then we'll have a good time. Um, I might get you, Rosemary, actually. Can you sort of track along and then change the slides? I'm just going to read from uh, that old thing called the Bible. Um, so uh, I've got the slides up on the board you can read. Um, I'm reading from an ESV. Feel free to read from an NIV. Um or whatever you happen to have in the views or, or whatnot. Um, anyway, we'll go through this and, and bear with me. Um, so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zechur the son of Imri built. The sons of Has- uh, Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hachol, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Ba'ana, repaired. And next to them, the Terakites uh, repaired. But the nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joidah, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. Yish- of they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. So obviously we've already gone through six, cha- uh, six verses and not much is going to change in terms of the structure, so if you'll continue to bear with me, we'll keep going. Um, <coughs> and next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon, the Meronothite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the fumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rapiah the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah the son of Huramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Malachi the son of Harim Hasub, uh, sorry, Harim and Hasub the sons of Petar Malab repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him Shalom the son of Halahesh ruler of, the, of half the district of Jerusalem repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate, and a thousand cubits of these are quite a fair way, mind you. Malkia, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhazer, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He repaired it and covered it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. He built the wall of the Pool of Salah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of, of uh, Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum the son of Barney. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Calah, repaired for his district. After them, brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them Azariah the son of Maaseah son of Ananiah repaired beside his own house. After him Binur the son of Henadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Halal, the son of Uzai repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on a, of a, sorry, on a fell repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and to the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the war of a fell. Four more verses, bear with me. After the horse gate the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them Zadok the son of Immer repaired opposite his own house. After him Shemiah the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate repaired. After him Hananiah the son of Shalammah and Hanun the sixth son of Zelaf repaired another section. After him Meshulam the son of Berechiah repaired opposite his chamber. After after sorry, after him, Melchiah, the, uh, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Wonderful. Finito. Cool. Um, <coughs> It's almost certainly that you've actually never read that heard that read before. Um, uh, I began to question about halfway through my prep whether this passage of Scripture had ever been read before, um, uh, and yes, you can probably see why. Um, but, no, <laughs> but no, on a serious note, um, look, obviously it's, it's, it can be a bit tedious to, to read through such a structured uh, thing, and um, you might be th- thinking, oh, well, this sounds very official, and you'd probably be right because uh, most scholars would generally agree that this is an official report that, that Nehemiah actually uh, constructed um, as to how the, the building of the wall was done. Um, so in one sense it most likely is an official report and that's why it reads as such. Um, but as we'll hopefully see, uh, there's actually a lot that can be taken out of it. Um, like I said before, the, 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 the sort of um, cursory glands might bring out leadership principles, um, but we'll try and bring out a bit more than that. Um, one thing I've got to say that is actually extraordinarily impressive, if, uh, which is why I did read it out in its entirety, is this. You see you see men and women working on the wall. You see the sons of, the sons of, the sons of, and then also... Uh, actually, I've got the slide. Pardon me. Ooh, I haven't got it on. And you've got Shalem's Daughters. So you've got men and women working on the wall here. You've got clergy and laity. Okay, You've got priests and then, uh, I don't want like common, say common folk, but like parishioners, uh, non-priests. Uh, you've got the high priests and the people. You've got ruling class and working class here. Uh, as an example, you've got the rule of the half district of Jerusalem. You've got a whole bunch of, of ruling class people working in the wall and then also temple servants as an example. Uh, you've got people from different towns. You've got the men of Jericho and then uh, there was a Gibeonite in there working, um, and then of course different trades: goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, etc., etc. And so, what do we see here? We see, uh, in essence, the 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 whole of the people working on on the wall and involved in it. Now, why you know why why is that sort of significant? Um, particularly because did any, can anyone notice a, a key sort of phrase that was repeated over and over and over there? Does anyone know? Prepared, yeah, true. Opposite their house, there's one more. thing. What was that? Yeah, beside or after them or uh, next to him. Particularly that one, good. Next to him or after them, we see, uh, you know, we see the high priest building this section, and next to them, a perfumer, someone on, on a much lower sort of trade scale or social class. And next to them, and next to him, and next to him, and after him. And so, do you see that you see the sort of picture that's, that's that's formed here? You've got this this picture of, of all of God's people, all of Israel, working side by side, working on the one particular task. Now, the reason why, I actually, if you notice the title, the title is called uh, a progression in redemptive history. Um, and this is where I'm going to connect it to other various aspects of scripture um, what I mean by redemptive history is this it's um, you remember how I mentioned in my, in my introduction about the fact that uh, we need to read you know no matter which aspect of uh, sort of the scriptures we, we're talking about uh, we need to try and dive deeper into it as opposed to just a through glance this is what I'm trying to tie it back to um, redemptive history is sort of the the concept the theological concept of how God's people are redeemed and how they have been redeemed throughout history. Okay, so for example, um, think of this way: you've got in the Old Testament, you've got guys like Moses and David. I'll, I'll pick on Moses for now. Uh, if we take an honest, eval- make an honest evaluation of, of Moses and his ministry and his life, uh, Moses essentially carried Israel on his back. You had Moses bearing the brunt of the work, doing a lot of uh, the ministry. Um, much times in opposition to the people, um, which is why you see plenty of times, uh, you know, the people falling into into grievous sin, and God essentially saying to Moses, "Stand aside, uh, for I will take them out." And then Moses uh, almost sort of steps between God and the people, and 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 pardons for them on their behalf. You've got Moses and these individual people throughout the Old Testament, sort of carrying the load. But what we have here now in, in Nehemiah, a post-exilic period after they've come back from exile in Babylon around four or 500 BC, is we've got a completely different image. This, this image of, of the entirety, essentially, of God's people working in the mission of God hasn't been seen before. It hasn't been seen. Obviously, the people... Uh, throughout Old Testament times, had to remain faithful, and, and yes, they failed. But obviously, there was a need for for action and whatnot. But in terms of all the people working together, it's unheard of. That's why you have uh, you know various ceremonial laws, uh, particularly listed throughout Leviticus, um, for example. Uh, you know that the people had to go through in order to make themselves even worthy enough, or or clean, or clean enough, or holy enough to actually come and offer a sacrifice. And then obviously the priest had to go through certain cleansing rituals, and and then the high priest especially, the one who would go into the Holy of of Holies, would have to go through such things as well. But here we have all the people, the entire council of the people of God, working on this particular project. And that's why it's important to note that the clergy are amongst the laity. You've You've got the high priest himself building. You've got the priests building. And then you've got everyone else building right next to each other without a distinction. And that's the image we're trying to tap onto here. We have a particular progression in redemptive history in regard to holiness here. And that's what I want to talk about for this next little bit is about holiness. This is where the progression's coming in. Okay, You might have read earlier, um, when it was, it was in the well, it was in the very first verse, so I don't blame you for forgetting it. Um, but in verse 1, uh, it mentions that, uh, the high priest and the priests consecrated the wall. Uh, consecrated, uh, the word there is kadosh in the Hebrew, it means holy. So in essence, they declared the wall, the wall holy. Okay, they declared it holy, they, they consecrated it. Let me explain briefly sort of how holiness has worked throughout, throughout this concept of redemptive history, okay? In times previous, you used to have uh, the holiness of God sort of come come to a place uh, for example um, Jacob in Bethel in Genesis you've got uh, the holiness of God coming down and, and, and Jacob seeing the, the stairway and whatnot. Um, that's God's holiness coming down and, and Bethel the name Bethel means the house of God um, in one sense it is but in another sense it, it isn't because God's holiness came and it left does that make sense um, further on you've got so sort of the institution of the tabernacle and then and then of course the the, the combination of that is the actual temple the building of temple um, it's a place where God's holiness would reside obviously with the tabernacle it would it, it's mobile it could move around but nonetheless it's still a, a semi fixated place and then obviously with the building of the first temple and then in this case the second temple uh, you now had a fixed place where the holiness of God, would reside in the holy of holies. That you know, the glory cloud, the shekinah glory, would reside, you know, on top of the ark of the covenant. Okay, but it's in a fixated place. It's it's amongst the people, but it's not it's not over the people. It's not anything in that regard. It's amongst the people. It's in the in the vicinity, so to speak. But that's the only, that's the only extent. That's why, uh, and I kid you not, the the one time in the year that the high priest went in to offer the uh, the blood and the sacrifices to them onto the mercy seat, they uh, said they would tie a rope around him uh, because if uh, in the event that uh, he did something unholy or he did something blasphemous or or as such uh, and would die, and they could actually drag his body up. That's the that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. The holiness of God residing in a particular place. But here in Nehemiah, we we begin to see uh, see a change, uh, you know, sort of take place in regard to holiness. I want to t- turn your attention to uh, to Isaiah chapter four. Um, we're going to be reading from verses two to six. Okay, it's actually a very it's a very intriguing prophecy, sort of regarding uh, the future state and regarding uh, this state of of holiness, so to speak. Um, I read I read from my notes. In that day. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded in the life of, uh, for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall, be, uh, shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a company. There will be a, sorry, it can't be my bad. Uh, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. in terms, if we're speaking about holiness and redemptive history, this this particular prophecy is is a shock. The shock, and I really mean that, uh, because as I, as I mentioned before, when it came to holiness, it was a fixated place. It was either a town, and then out, and then you move to the tabernacle, and then obviously uh, the, the the temple, one fixated location on earth. But this prophecy is projecting towards a, a future, day, as it says, in that day, a time where the holiness of God, he says, as it says, uh, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And it says that a cloud of holiness will reside over all the people. So now it's not just saying the holy of holies is the holy place, but it is now saying that the people will be holy and that this cloud of, of holiness shall reside over them, which is a staggering, staggering concept, from especially from an Old Testament perspective. We see in the climax of, of the book of Zechariah in chapter 14 which I'm now going to read from um, another very revealing connection to this particular passage that I spent more time than I would have liked to have read. Um, so picking up in verse 20 <coughs> and on that day again that phrase on that day that projecting that looking forward to there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord And the pots of the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy for the Lord, so holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them, and boil the heat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So, if you indulge me in a very very brief historical lesson. that, that sort of phrase, uh, holy to the Lord, um, uh, again that word kadosh, kadosh, kadosh la Adonai, it was a phrase that was inscripted on, as it says, things like the pots uh, that were kept in the temple um, for the simple reason of these are the, it's almost like a do not use kind of sign. Uh, it, was put, it was inscribed uh, holy to the Lord on those particular pots that were used for sacrifice so that, uh, Billy Bob, a nice Hebrew name uh, wouldn't come along and use him to cook his goat that night um, uh, it was again consecrating it, keeping it separate but here we have uh, you know, have it said here in Zechariah in chapter 14 that, that even the, the bells or, or in other words the, the bridles on your horses will have holy to the Lord inscribed they will be holy, even the, the pots in your kitchen will be holy, now what what is that saying? it is saying that essentially God is saying one day I'm going to make the people holy. I'm going to make the people holy. My holiness will not come down upon the earth and then depart. My holiness will no longer reside in a contained uh, sort of building. But I'll make my people holy. I'll make my people holy. This actually makes sort of a sense of two particular parts in... Um, in the New Testament, especially in, in looking at the view of uh, all the people of God working together side by side. The first is, is the tearing of the veil that happens upon the death of Christ. Again, there's nothing in the scriptures that didn't happen for a reason. And that tearing of the veil, if you recall, upon the death of Christ on Calvary, had a ma- it was a massive thing, massive thing. And there's a m- big implications of it. That tearing of the veil in the whole, between the Holy and the Holy of Holies or even the court as an extension is essentially a tearing apart between this separation, this distinction between God and the outsider, between God and his people. As I mentioned before, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Other than that, if you went in there, you died. It was that simple. You went in there, you died. But now you have this tearing of the veil. Not only is just God holy now, but now the people themselves are being exposed to, in a way, I suppose, His holiness. Which, again, if we're thinking about redemptive history, is just an almighty change. It is an almighty change. And then the second particular. I think over here. Good. The particular uh, second particular part, which you might have already actually been thinking about, it comes from Galatians three twenty-eight, uh, where where it is written, uh, you know, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither the slave nor free, male nor female, uh, for all of you are in Christ. And that's what that passage is talking about. This 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 picture we're given here in uh, in Nehemiah chapter three is is that sort of beginning of that progression towards the stage where now after. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. After the fulfilment of all that He did, you now have a situation in redemptive history where now there is no distinction; there is no Jew nor Greek, as, as you know, as it was read in Zechariah. There, uh, you know, there shall not be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord, not because Canaanites shall be shunned, but because they won't be called Canaanites anymore. You know, Isaiah speaks of a day where. God will say Assyria my people and Egypt my Egypt my inheritance. That's why we as Australians as uh, as Gentiles so to speak we have access to the Lord of glory. Not only is uh, so no longer is the uh, the salvation that was wrought in Christ located to an ethnic group of Jewish people. It is now accessible to people of all nations. It is now widespread. It is no longer the Jews standing fortified, Israel, God's people standing fortified against every other nation in the world, which is essentially what it was. But it is now the case that God's people reside over all the earth, not because they have emigrated, but rather because the gospel now reaches all parts. The gospel is effective and effectual to change the heart of any man or woman. Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, male or female, frail, uh, free or slave. That is the beauty of the gospel. And that is the beauty of this stage in redemptive history that we reside in. This stage where it is not just God who is holy, but that holiness has been imparted to us. It is literally indwelling us in the form of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot you can see. There's a lot I've taken out of. Uh, a bunch of and the sons of this, next of this, built this. That's why it's uh, unfortunate for us to take any cursory glance, because you can see how much we can keep getting out of it. Um, I'll start to round up, believe um, it or not, uh, with these particular two points. Right, this so is where I'm going to tie it back to give you some application for us. Two points: Every Christian has a ministry. Every Christian has a ministry. And the body of Christ is one. Now I'm going to explain those two points for you. Okay, the first point, which was that uh, what did I say? Every Christian has a ministry. In 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 one capacity or another, every single one of us in here who is born again, uh, servants of the living God, we have a ministry. We are ministers to to people. Um, obviously, there is uh, you know people like 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 Graham who is a minister. He is the the, the pastor of this church. Um, but each individual, no matter what scenario in life we are, uh, no matter what sort of circumstances we were saved out of, have a ministry in some regard. Uh, I, for example, am obviously preaching to you this evening. Um, there are the, you know deacons who take around uh, the offering. We each have a ministry in some particular regard. Okay, As we, as we sort of saw in, in this passage of Nehemiah, again the concept of well this job was just this job is too much for the uh, for the laity i say for the clergy it was too much for just the priest the priest couldn't build this entire wall so what did you have you now had the laity and the clergy building You had all of god's people building the wall partaking in god's mission doing the work of god that makes sense in the same way it's all hands on deck now for us it's all hands on deck there's no, uh, there's no room for leaving it up to the pastor who's aside with dealing all with all of the the problems and and personal issues in people's lives, then spending how many hours he has left to prepare a sermon and then to evangelize people. We live in we live in a time where it's all hands on deck, on you know, for God's people. I was um, you know, think of it this way: like we've got. What's our membership now? Like about ninety odd? Ninety five, there you go. Oh all right, ninety odd. Um, the ninety five people and then obviously the, the other like other people who uh, you know, attend to you on a regular basis it's no coincidence that, you know, if this church is filled with the Holy Spirit and this church is, is doing the will of God, which I believe it is, then there is it's no coincidence that that each of you are here. It's no it's no coincidence. You know what I mean? God has drawn you to this place for a purpose. He's drawn you to this place, to this particular community of believers, to serve a purpose and to do His will. you following me? And so, you know, we each have it in our capacity or our ability, for example, to minister to certain people. You might have, you know, you, you have a particular heart that you can reach, you have a particular. Sort of uh, life circumstance that you can perhaps provide an empathetic word of encouragement into, both inside the church and then on the exterior. There are people who, um, obviously, yes, the gospel transcends all generations and all circumstances. But there might be a particular person outside of, of of the body of God that you know you have a you came out of a similar circumstance. It might be drug abuse. It might be uh, being abused as a child it might be any litany of things and you can speak into that scenario because you know what it is you know i'm saying and so each person in this place isn't just here because this is you know we've got a nice building and and we've got at least four heaters that seem to work it's you know we're each here for a particular reason and i want us to keep that in mind that's why we can't afford to uh sort of uh partake in what i like to call cafeteria church which is sort of the concept of, well, I'll go to this church because this suits my need, this suits my need, and this suits my need. And whenever these things don't, you know, they, whenever these starts, things start to fail to meet meet my needs, I then jump ship and join another church. It's like going through the mall. That's why, you know, we're a body, we're a family, and we each have a role in this place. And more on that is this. Um, he's probably the best way I can sum it up. I was recommended a book by a pastor that I know, and it's called um, "It's Called Evangelism in the Early Church," right? By a guy named um, Michael Green. In the, In the book, um, he goes forth and uh, and he's talking about how obviously evangelism was conducted in the early church in the first century. Okay. Now, obviously, there was a growing in in the size of churches, and and people were getting saved. Mind you, this was what have we got here. Now, I'm going to say maybe we've got 20-ish right here this is this is spot on the, almost almost spot on the exact size of the average church in the first century first century church had an average size of about 20 largest one the lar- largest absolute largest were no bigger than 50 um, but as people were getting evangelized this uh, you know dr. Green is sort of exploring in his book how evangelism came about um, you know now for us trust for nowadays it's sort of common to go well, uh, you know, we'll bring a bring a bring a friend to church kind of thing and, and you know, hopefully they'll you know hopefully there'll be a good preacher on who'll preach a semi okay message and um and something good will come out of it. Which I'm not saying is necessarily wrong. Um but the interesting thing if you think about this from a first century perspective is if you brought the wrong non Christian to church you're gonna be up the creek without a paddle because you bring the wrong non Christian to church uh, loose, lip, you know, loose lips sink ships, so to speak. right, you've got uh, you've got a big problem in your hands with the authority, and if they blab and all the more importantly, you just bring the wrong person, and they'll just do the job themselves. I'm dead serious. So you can't uh, in the first century and even the second century and other centuries, you can't just bring a friend along to church. But as Doctor uh, Doctor Green explains in this book, a rather simple fact, which I sort of went, oh yeah, it's a good point. Um, it wasn't up to the great preacher in the church to evangelise people because it couldn't operate that way. You evangelised people. You evangelise people. And the same thing that stood then stands today. The same thing that was true then is true today. You don't need to necessarily, again, not, not excluding it, but you don't have to bring a, or feel like you have to bring a, a, Christian along, oh, sorry, a non-Christian along to church in order that they can hear the gospel and get saved. And more importantly, you shouldn't be thinking that that's the only way it's going to happen. We each have a responsibility, as I said, we each have a ministry. We each have a responsibility just as much to preach the gospel. We share the gospel. We're the light. It's not up to preachers and and pastors to do all the work. It's up to all of us collectively as a community, as we've seen in Nehemiah 3, to preach the gospel, to build the church to build God's kingdom, literally and, and and then spiritually speaking, it's each of our responsibilities to do that. Okay. Now the second point. Lastly, uh, the body of Christ is one. Okay. This is again connecting this concept of after him, after him, next to him, next to him. Okay. The body of the body of Christ is one. Why? Because He has declared us holy through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through the spilling of His blood, and and through the atonement that was that was wrought through him taking sin and hell you know upon himself on our behalf, he is declared holy each and every one of us who repents and believes the gospel. Okay. Now, irrespective of gender, class, and ethnicity, any person walking around on this planet that is filled with the Holy Ghost is a part of the body. It does not matter whether you are whether you attend a Baptist church, whether you attend an Anglican church, uh Pentecostal church, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether you attend a charismatic church for that matter. If you are legitimately born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, you are part of the body of Christ. Denominations serve their purpose, but again, the gospel even transcends denominations. But let me finish with this story, and this is, I promise you, this is actually the last thing I'm going to talk about. In the early 1900s, there was a, a very, very prominent uh, British pastor, well, really, the British pastor and preacher, a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, David Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, he, in, from from a non-aristocratic perspective, he had the perfect career path and the perfect life. In the early 1900s, he was a he was a doctor, graduated medical school, and was working for the royal family, uh, working for a guy, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Lord Horder uh, whom we, we don't know because he became a Christian, but you could rightly assume that when Lorne Hoarder passed away, uh, Dr. Jones would have entered the, uh, you know, entered into that area of, of, of life and and that and that sort of, sort of job description. Um, and he had it absolutely made, high class, uh, high paying job, and was shooting up the ladder. But then um, a really inconvenient thing uh, happened to him; he got saved. Um and I say that with sarcasm. Uh, and then he was sort of in this position of, well, I now, I, I now realize that I'm called to enter into the ministry, I'm called to enter into pastorship. Um and he passed he began pastoring a little church in this little fisher town, poor as, you know, fisherman's town in Wales. Um a bit a bit away from, from Cardiff. Um the one thing he he always sort of struggled with was uh, not always but like initially when he got saved and entered into the ministry uh, one thing he struggled with was you know ha- uh, the question that many of us struggle with how do i know i'm saved how do i know i'm saved and it was sort of upon his uh, exposition of ephesians chapter 1 particularly verse 15 where paul is saying um uh, you know i've heard many good things about you and i am uh you know i'm confident in your in your uh, in your salvation um, because i know of your one, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. That's what it talks about in there in, in Ephesians 1. Um, the first point, knowing as whether someone's a Christian, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. But then the second point, the love for all the saints. And this is a thing that, uh, that Dr. Jones, you know, considered and then, you know, came to understand is this. What on earth makes a gentleman who was in the upper echelons of society, economically and socially speaking. A gentleman who had a very prestigious job, medicine, doctor, and a gentleman who was you know, on the fast lane and on the fast track to much security, much prosperity and much uh, and a very abundant life from a worldly perspective. What makes a gentleman like that end up in a poor fisherman's town in Wales? And then moreover is this, what makes a gentleman of such a a high social and economic standing have more in common and have more love and more connection for the poorest fisherwoman, as he describes in one of his memoirs, than for all of his associates and all of his fellow doctors in the practice? What's the fact? That it's the love, it's the fact that the body of Christ are one. That is why Dr. Jones had more of a connection and more love with the poorest fisherwoman in his church, who had, uh, you know, who was six, you know, five, six runs down the ladder from him. He had more love and connection for her than all of his other associates in the practice because of that connection of holiness, that connection of the Holy Spirit, the one common denominator which was Jesus. Came from completely different social ends, completely different economic ends, completely different life circumstances. But the one thing that pervaded all of that and went to the depth and foundation of their identity was the fact that they were Christians. They were servants of the living God. And that is what we are. The gospel breaks through every single layer of identity. Male, uh, you know, X amount of uh, social, uh, economic status. uh, Lives here. Heterosexual, it goes down to the foundation, the absolute foundation. It pervades every aspect of our identity. That's what the gospel does and that's what defines us as Christians. We are Australians, but we are, we are Christians first. We live in the Blue Mountains. That's where we reside, but we are Christians before we are, um, the name I've heard thrown around, black heathens. Apparently that's correct. Um, very ironic, but nonetheless. Um, it's the gospel that gets to the foundation. It's the, it's the fact that we're all part of the body of Christ. And that is why, as I said, we all have a ministry. We are all in this particular church for a particular reason, as God has ordained. And we need to continue to strive towards ministering in our little section of the wall. We keep we keep building our part of the wall. All right, there are feet, there are legs, there are arms, there are heads, there are this and that, all part of the body, but we focus on our part of the wall. Does that makes sense. Doesn't matter what, you know. Again, as I said, it doesn't matter where you are. Don't think that i am somehow got some more of an important role per se just because I'm up here in a pulpit teaching you the Word of God. It just means that this is the, the giftings and, and whatnot that God has given me. And it would be a, a disservice and not only that, I would be outside of the will of God if I wasn't doing what I'm doing. But similarly, if, if your ministry at this particular part in your life is, uh, you know, is being a light in the darkness at school, if it is uh, standing up for biblical truth in the workplace, if it is acting responsibly, uh, here's one: if it's acting responsibly and acting in a way completely contrary to the rest uh, of your friends list on Facebook, I really mean that. If that is your ministry right now, then that's your ministry. But God will continue to grow you. God will con- will continue to increase you in that holiness. You'll continue to draw h- yourself closer to Him and you continue to draw yourself closer to other Christians. May we leave with that remembering of the fact that we all have a ministry, we're all part of the body of God, and I hope that's what we've been able to take out of tonight. Okay? I'll close in prayer, if you will. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we thank you, of course, for this blessed opportunity to come into your house tonight and to uh, to sing your praises, Lord, to worship your holy name, to hear the word preached, Lord, and, uh, so that we may grow in Christ likeness. Father, I pray that uh, you know. I pray to thank you for the fact that you have brought us here and drawn us to this house, Lord. The only reason that we are here is by your calling and your drawing. Father, I pray that these words that have been preached, Lord, and, and, and the words that have been brought uh, from your scriptures may not return void; that they may not be. Uh, sort of left idly in vain but rather Father I just pray that these words would reach the deepest depths of our soul that our heart will be transformed Lord it is written that you have taken out our heart of stone that that cold uh, rebellious heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh a heart that seeks not after its own way and own understanding but but rather unto your desires and will. And Father, I just pray that you may increase us in that regard, increase us in holiness. Father, may we not build a wall up to divide ourselves or or to keep unbelievers out, but rather may we understand that those walls are walls of salvation. As Isaiah details, they're walls of salvation that uh, protect us from sin and death. Father, uh, you have said that you know those who come to you shall uh, in no wise turn away Lord I just pray that uh, we may take up our part in preaching the gospel that we may uh, not sit idly by as the world hurdles a hundred miles an hour towards hell but Lord I pray that that we may have an attitude of resilience and fortitude and endurance Lord Father, we are living in a time where the world is falling into darkness and into, in, in, sorry, and into greater depravity. Father, I pray that you may sanctify us in the truth for thy, for thy word is truth. Lord, may you continue to protect us, of course, but by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, Lord, may we not just remain inside these four walls. May we go out into the world May we not be of the world, but may we be in the world, that we may preach the gospel of salvation unto all men. Father, may the world, if they so, so bid it that they want to head to hell, Lord, may they head over our, our dying bodies as we grasp their knees. Father, may every ounce of us pour out in evangelizing and reaching the world for Jesus. Father, above all things, in our heart, in thought and word and in deed, and in particular in this place, Lord, may the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, be uplifted forevermore. Father, may you guide us and and help us to remain steadfast in your will. May this place, may Blackheath Baptist Church forever proclaim the name of Jesus. May its people forever hold and carry the name of Jesus in a way that is honourable unto you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may your name be praised amongst all the earth. And Lord, we look forward to that day where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. For it is in his holy name that we pray. Amen.